Support for this WXAV podcast is being provided by Bookies, new and used books. Located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago, Bookies specializes in new and used books. Their selection includes new releases, bestsellers, and books that are out of print. For more information, please visit their website at bookieschicago.com. You can also find them on Facebook by searching Bookies Chicago or call them at 773-239-1110. Hello and welcome to A Great Woman and Her Time, a WXAV 88.3 FM series that examines the extraordinary life of a 19th century Irish woman. And now your host, Graham Peck. Hello, my name is Graham Peck, and I am a professor of history at St. Xavier University in Chicago, where I have taught since 2002. I have written a book and produced a film on the origins of the Civil War, and if you would like to learn more about my career, you can do so by visiting civilwarprof.com. But if you love to listen to history, then stay strapped into your earbuds, because we are going to take another journey into the past. On June 11, 1832, only six months after Catherine Macaulay took vows as the First Sister of Mercy, a Catholic schoolteacher named Humphrey O'Sullivan penned the following entry in his diary. The lower classes of the Irish are a credulous people. Some practical joker sent a fool out with a small piece of charred stick or some other bit of kindling, which had been extinguished in holy water, and told him to divide it into four parts and to give it to four persons in four houses, telling them that the cholera would kill them unless each one of them did the same thing. As a consequence, O'Sullivan reported, thousands of poor Catholics went from house to house, delivering to their neighbors bits of kindling dipped in holy water, Their gullibility, he said, made the entire country a laughingstock for Protestants. O'Sullivan was deeply embarrassed by this display, but he was far from alone among educated Catholics, because what he saw transpired over three-quarters of Ireland. Indeed, hundreds of thousands of Irish Catholic peasants, often barefoot, spread this message across 300 miles in only six days. It was an extraordinary spectacle, and it testifies to an Irish Catholic religious culture that invites investigation and that will teach us about the world inhabited by Catherine Macaulay. In the prior episode of this series on Catherine Macaulay, founder of the Sisters of Mercy, we learned that many Irish Catholics suffered from severe poverty in the early 19th century. The most notable consequence of that poverty was food scarcity, which would later eventuate in the terrible Irish potato famine of the 1840s and 1850s. But there were also cultural consequences of this poverty, as is suggested by the extraordinary spectacle that occurred during the six days in June. Hence, our question for today, what exactly happened during those six days? And what does it tell us about the Irish Catholics whom Catherine Macaulay and the Sisters of Mercy would seek to serve? In a nutshell, the religious frenzy reflected poor Catholics' unwavering belief 
in the active presence of the supernatural in their day-to-day -day lives. When suddenly fused with the dire fear of cholera, which was spreading to Ireland, these supernatural beliefs suddenly gave rise to the extraordinary spectacle that gives us entry into their mental world. Cholera arrived in England in October of 1831, and it soon crossed the Irish Sea. The cholera appeared in Dublin and in Belfast in March of 1832, and by May it had appeared in approximately half of Ireland's counties. Gripped by a creeping fear, the emotions of the Irish people were, like dried tinder, ready to ignite. Two days before Humphrey O'Sullivan penned his diary entry came the first sign that the fire had begun. In County Cork, it was said, the Virgin Mary had appeared and had left both ashes and instructions to protect the population from cholera. She ordered that the ashes be placed under the roofs of local homeowners who were in turn required to take ashes from their chimneys and to take them to their neighbors. Such was the anxiety to put her orders into execution, wrote a local functionary, that the whole country was up in a moment, the fields full of people in their shirts, running about as if they were mad. Mad, but industrious, because they spread this message over 40 square miles in only four hours during the middle of the night. Much of the rest of Catholic Ireland was about to follow. Subsequent reports sent to Dublin Castle indicated the sheer pandemonium produced by this heady mixture of fear and fervor. Like a wildfire, this holy message of salvation spread fast and furiously, constantly inflamed by the ardor of new messengers. It was carried to Kildare, wrote one observer, by an immense assemblages of persons of the lowest descriptions. When received at another locale, near midnight, wrote someone else, the streets were filled with men, women, and children. These reports were par for the course. Throughout Ireland, informants witnessed people running around as if mad. But the runners were of a specific social group. Only Catholics, and overwhelmingly poor. In County Kildare, wrote one reporter, so exclusive was the distribution and so perfectly the religion of the householders known that not a single Protestant was favored with a call. Meanwhile, the participants were repeatedly described by observers as the country people, the lower classes, or just the peasantry. The role of the supernatural was central to this frenzy of the Catholic poor. While the Virgin Mary was the animating agent, according to the very first report, subsequent reports indicated that the supernatural had taken on more modest form, most notably Blessed Turf. Blessed Turf was surely an improvement over the original, for Turf referred to peat from peat bogs, which was cut up dried and burned as fuel throughout Ireland. Now, turf would not seem to be the most likely supernatural item, but as the message spread, 
couriers of blessed turf began traversing the island. The greatest confusion appeared, according to one account, in consequence of people running through the town carrying seven pieces of turf, and at each house they left a piece with directions to burn it at their door and to say some prayers. Yet blessed turf, however valuable, was not the only salvific supernatural item. As the message spread throughout Ireland, variations on the message appeared, and sundry items took on supernatural powers. Straw, stones, clay, and charred wood. Each was reputed to stave off cholera. What united them was the Irish Catholic belief in the supernatural. Yet the most imaginative variation on the message had less to do with supernatural salvation than with a dire supernatural threat. The summary of the proceedings received by Dublin Castle indicated that villagers in one neighborhood were, quote, put in great commotion and the peaceable and well-disposed in great terror by a report having spread like magic that some town on the west of us had been consumed by fire from heaven. Rumors quickly spread in the neighboring region of entire towns consumed by great balls of fire, an even better reason, if one was needed, to distribute the blessed turf as rapidly as possible. That poor Catholics were so susceptible to these supernatural beliefs reminds us that the Ireland of Catherine Macaulay was filled with pre-modern folk beliefs. To poor Catholics, fairies and changelings and magic were real, and therefore they practiced day-to-day -day superstitious rituals in order to ward off evil and to ensure good luck. We might call this superstition, but we are reminded by the historian S.J. Connolly that three worlds existed simultaneously for these poor Catholics, the natural world in which they lived, and two supernatural worlds, one Christian and one not. Reconciling these worlds was not as difficult as might be imagined. After all, Irish folktales could morph into Christian belief. For instance, the Irish folk belief in fairies could morph into the idea that fairies were fallen angels permitted to remain on the earth instead of being banished to hell after Satan's failed rebellion against God. Either way, these were very scary creatures. Peasants in the time of Catherine Macaulay did not rip out bushes that belonged to fairies, and they did not plant potatoes in fairy mounds, even when the peasants were starving. Yet, the assimilation of Catholic ideas to Irish folktales was never perfect, and hence, in the early 19th century, a growing disjuncture began to emerge between the educated and the poor Catholics. Both groups believed in the supernatural, but the educated Catholics sharply distinguished between pre-modern folk beliefs and their Catholic faith. As the daughter of a prosperous farmer put it, the world of saints and angels was, quote, a world of faith which to Catholics is almost as real as the earthen world in which we live. By contrast, 
the maids in her household, quote, did not get into the other world in the way we did who knew more about it. Although they were thankful for holy days and went to Mass, they were really more interested in an old Irish world where fairies, witches, and banshees took the place of our angels and saints. All of this helps us to understand why Catherine Macaulay dedicated her order not only to sheltering poor women, but also to educating them. After all, in the 1820s, about half the Irish Catholic population received no religious education beyond Sunday school and weekly sermons. And of the other half that attended school, only a tiny proportion received instruction from teachers who had been directed by priests. This factor, the primitive state of Catholic religious education, when combined with the penal laws, which had long precluded the bishops from teaching the faith, meant that the state of Catholic religious practice was far more sporadic and much less devout than desired by the Irish clergy. As S.J. Connolly writes, the great majority of Irish Catholics remain severely limited in frequency of attendance, in the range of devotional observances, and in the degree of ceremony and external display with which public worship was conducted. Hence the Sisters of Mercy, like other new teaching orders that emerged in the early 19th century, served as an evangelizing force for the church. To Macaulay, educating young girls served the valuable and important function of preparing them for employment, but it served the even more important function of preparing them and their prospective families for eternal salvation. Thus the sisters sought to evangelize in the church by teaching its precepts and by channeling the superstitious beliefs of the Catholic poor into Catholic devotional practice. Without question, to the extent possible, the Catholic Church desired a monopoly on the supernatural. Catherine Macaulay left no recorded response to the religious frenzy spurred by the threat of cholera. But few letters of hers exist from that time, and in any case, she was very busy. The cholera itself demanded a far more immediate response from the Sisters of Mercy that education could provide. And thus it was that the third major object of the order became quickly manifest in the summer of 1832, the merciful object of ministering to the sick. On the docket for our next episode is another wonderful story. The response of Catherine Macaulay and her sisters to the miserable plight of Dublin's poor in the cholera epidemic in 1832. It will help us to begin to understand the character, leadership, and achievements of Catherine Macaulay. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned for more. You've been listening to WXAV's A Great Woman and Her Time, a program created, researched, written, and narrated by Graham Peck. Engineering and editing by Peter Creighton. For more information on the series, please visit Graham Peck's website, civilwarprof.com.